Welcome to another Music and the Brain podcast from the Library of Congress. I'm Steve Mencher, and I'm talking today with Peter Janata. He's an associate professor at UC Davis in the psychology department and involved there in the Center for Mind and Brain. And uh, I just sat uh, through your wonderful talk upstairs in, in a fabulous uh, room at the Library of Congress, you must Thank admit, with the, the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a remarkable room. And yeah, the talk was great, too. But you didn't there get to tell us anything about yourself, so that's where I want to start. Tell me about you and music and growing up. Well, I, I uh, took piano lessons as a kid, so I was classically trained and uh, very much grew up in a uh, household where my parents are great music lovers, but we only listened to classical music. So on Sundays, you know, we'd hear Bach, the Bach cantata calendar, you know, and it was, it was great. Um, but it really wasn't until I was maybe 12 or 13 that I started listening to pop music and, in fact, started doing so on the sly because I was afraid that my parents might be upset if they uh, caught me listening to, you know, the radio, other stations on the radio. When they did find out, they assured me that it was fine for me to listen to whatever you know, I wanted to, that they really weren't trying to bias me. It's just that they only listened to classical music. But in, in that regard, I guess my, uh, my pop music education was fairly stunted and something that I've just been catching up with more uh, in, in recent years. Starting at the age of 15 or 16, I became very interested in the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, then became a great fan of the Grateful Dead. I listened, I know their music inside and out. And then by high school, I quit taking piano lessons, but then I started playing music with other people and uh, just trying to improvise. So largely in the folk and folk rock, sort of singer-songwriter type of veins. And I, and I do that to this day. I mean, it's uh, so pleasing to sit around with a group of people and, and make music uh, together and just see what comes out of it, you know. And, it doesn't always sound good, but when it does, it's those are magical moments. Let me start back with, with the classical music, because there, there used to be a sort of a theory that it was great for young students, especially to have a sort of a grounding or whatever in classical music. That was where you were going to get a sense of what Western harmony was about, where why a two chord went to a five chord in a different way. Obviously, pop, the two also goes to a five. But uh, do you see uh, something that's valuable in teaching young kids, uh, quote unquote, classical music? Or do you think, let them go for the things that they enjoy, that they're hearing on the radio, that they're hearing in the streets? It doesn't really matter what they hear first, as long as it's music. Yeah, I think more of the latter. I mean, so watching my own kids growing up and how they they engage with music, I mean, it's having them play things that really captivate them, that they want to play. I think they make better progress that way. But that said, I mean, one part of my music training that I consider extremely valuable, and in fact, it really shaped, you know, why I'm doing the science I'm doing now is that my piano teacher, aside from the private lesson, also had us uh, in group theory lessons uh, once a week, where we learned a lot of the basics of harmony and music theory and 
those things, such that when I went to college, I was able to test out a first-year theory. And it was really uh, having that understanding, you know, those were the first glimpses of, you know, music is such a beautiful thing. And trying to, you know, seeing that there's this structure that underlies it, that enables it to be uh, glorious. And and I don't think that one gets that sense of understanding if you're uh, necessarily, certainly not explicitly, if you're just working out your, you know, your favorite song. Yeah, and also I, I had a feeling, and, and maybe this is, is true or not, that in being taught the rules and in learning the rules and in knowing rules, and I find this in lots of different parts of my life, I'm someone who loves to break the rules, but in breaking them, it, I always enjoy breaking them more when I know them. So I spent, you know, two or three years or however many years they stand up in front of the room and tell you, you will never move in parallel fourths, you will never move in parallel fifths, you are not allowed to do X, Y, and Z when you're harmonizing. And my gosh, as soon as I could start composing and writing things, I would break every single rule. But the fact that I knew what I was listening against because there was something that was not exactly comfortable when I broke the rules, it, it kind of helped me understand what I was listening to. Yeah, although I think a lot of that is cultural convention, right? I yeah. mean, uh, I think you'd have a hard time telling a bunch of metalheads that moving around in parallel fifths on electric guitars is a bad thing to do, you know, because, I mean, that, it captivates the audience. And, and I think that at different periods in time, certainly across musical styles, it's a very culturally dependent uh, thing that determines what's right and what's what's wrong. You know, what, what are those conventions? Sure, absolutely. Before we get to some of your current research, I did take a look at, and see that one of the things that you had studied uh, as you were in school was how birds learn to sing. And, and since I had you here, I didn't want to, I want to make sure to ask you, how do birds learn to sing and why should we be studying that? Juvenile songbirds, by the time they're 20 days of age, have already memorized their father's song or a tutor song, right? And then in isolation, they're able to basically start babbling, the equivalent of bird babble, and gradually refine their own song until it becomes a very close match of the tutor song. So they're doing this entirely from memory, a memory that's actually formed very, very quickly. Um, and so it's an excellent model system for how do we learn auditory sequences, how do we uh, engage uh, perceptual and motor systems uh, in order to refine vocal output. So obviously in humans, we're talking about speech, and then in, uh, in birds, we're talking about you know, their, their whistles and their the notes and syllables that they produce. What's the difference, though, to help me understand between kind of learning something from a tutor, say, and if someone were to tell me, I, I would have also nodded my head and said, of course, they say, oh, this is hardwired into the bird. The bird is born, and on day 20, as it starts to whistle, it simply whistles the song that genetically is imprinted. Is there such a thing, or what's the difference between learning and the genetics? Yeah, well, there, there there's a lot of variation across species. And there's also distinctions that are made between calls and songs, where calls are vocalizations that are pretty much hardwired. But then song is, is learned, and I think the best evidence for that are those species 
who can learn multiple different songs. And then you have species such as mockingbirds, uh, nightingales, who can learn new auditory material. They can learn to mimic their sounds or they can learn new songs essentially on a single trial basis in some cases. So that sort of flexibility, I think, is good evidence for a learning process rather than something that's hardwired. That's fascinating. All right, let's jump into some of the stuff that you've been doing the last few years because that's really great. There's two areas that I want to talk about. One that has to do with music and its connection to memories and emotions. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about your current research, which involves music evoking spiritual and religious experiences or being somehow connected to those experiences. Let's start with the music-evoked autobiographical memories, and and you've studied them. Can you define what that would mean in in layman's terms? Yeah, I mean, I I view it as that experience when we're driving down the road in a car, song comes on the radio, you know, that we haven't heard in a long time, and all of a sudden we're experiencing, you know, the memory of being at a party 20 years ago, um, you know, and the people who were there, and, you know, perhaps if we you know, fell in love or something, you know, th- those, those types of things. Okay. And how is that different? Say, I know in your talk you brought up smells a little bit, and of course there's Proust and his famous cookie that he smelled, and it brought back a whole world of his uh, childhood. So how would it be different having a, a cookie or a madeleine that evoked your childhood and a song that evoked a certain time in your adolescence or your growing up? Well, I think that aside from the sensory input, that then the experience is actually fairly common between the two. And in fact, I, I showed one slide during my talk um, of results from a study which compared familiarity for smells and familiarity for music and showed that there are certain parts of the brain that respond more, uh, you know, the, it's the same region that responds to either one of those modalities. So that's very suggestive of a tight, tight coupling there with the autobiographical memory systems. I was thinking when I knew I would be talking to you about this, about things like that in my own childhood. So there I am, I'm in sixth grade or something, and, and this song about it's 100 pounds of clay comes on the radio that makes my life worth living. I can picture the transistor radio, I can picture having the radio under my pillow, and I can swear to you that if this song came on the radio today, my body would start to change. I would almost start to, to put myself into that space where I was at the age of eight years old. And you must have had lots of these experiences when you were doing this research yourself and with your uh, research subjects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's the remarkable thing about it. It's so compelling. You know, so I, I think it shows how music is actually a great way of, of looking at the structure of these memories. And, you know, I think it's going to reveal uh, potentially with tremendous detail about how our brain organizes memories as well as that experiential state, you know, that you're describing, that you just all of a sudden feel that you're there. It's a very compelling sort of mental space to be in. Right. Now, you're peering into the brains of your subjects with uh, functional magnetic resonance while you're, at, while you're playing the music, and then you, you have a questionnaire afterwards. Tell us a little bit about the process there. We take individuals who that we, we know that we can elicit memories uh, with brief song excerpts, and then they're lying in the scanner. We present a song. Some are familiar, some are unfamiliar. 
so after each song, they tell us, you know, how familiar was it, how uh, memory evoking was it, how pleasing was it. And so then we use those subjective responses to set up our statistical model to analyze the data and be able to tease apart what brain regions are responding to those changes in the felt emotion or the, the strength of the memory. Uh, so we do that. And then the other thing that I do is I, I take uh, a model of how music moves around uh, within the major and minor keys. So we can describe that in great detail and then use that in the statistical model to analyze the brain data so that I can identify regions that are actually tracking the music, the, the tonal structure of the music, you know, the melodies, the chord progressions, and then look at that activity as a function of whether it's evoking memories or not. And that's where I think that some of the kind of the detailed aspects of how the memories are being structured in the brain, how we're going to be able to get at that. So you're, tell me if I'm getting this, you're sort of watching the brain listening. Exactly, And the, yeah. the way, and the reason that you're watching the brain listening is because this is a really cool way, this is like a Grand Central Station or something. There's, there's trains coming and going, some have to do with memory, some have to do with the specific of music, some have to do with sense memories, and, and all of this, you're, you're kind of trying to watch to understand more about each of those individual things. That, that's right. It's a huge web of associations. And if you think about, you know, your train of thought and how you can think about this and that triggers some other thought or some other memory, right? Our, our brains just form all these associations. So what, what the music is doing, it's kindling those associations and so by virtue of being able to uh, examine the structure of the music and how our brains are listening to the music, as you said, that then lets us get at all those various associations. That's fabulous. Now, you're also doing this in a separate set of studies with religion and spirituality. And again, this must also be a very deep place, not literally deep, because I, I know you, you described where in the brain this was, but a place where music and spirituality come together in the brain. I'm thinking of someone sitting in a church pew. It doesn't have to be that. It could be someone dancing in a trance, but let, let, let them sit for a second in a church pew listening to a hymn or something. And again, we have the element of music and memory and also the, then spirituality and religion. What are you looking for in those studies? Obviously, spiritual states are, you know, difficult in part to define, and then looking for those in the brain is, is a bit tricky. So, uh, and there are different ways that we can experience those. The way I'm thinking about it is one way of experiencing those is very closely related to these music-evoked autobiographical memories. I mean, you're mentioning sitting in a church. Well, that's a very social context, right? We may have strong memories of being in church and the people who are there and singing together. And so those types of activities, those types of memories will tend to uh, activate these parts of the brain I was describing as being important for experiencing memories and emotions with the music. So my guess is, is that the strong spiritual states, some of those states, will show a pattern that's actually quite similar to the music evoked autobiographical memories. Another way is, and you mentioned that 
you know, the singing and really getting into the music, be feeling very integrated with the music. I think that comes about through how two different brain networks are being coupled. Uh, basically, one brain network that we use for paying attention to our external environments, and the other brain network, which includes these medial prefrontal areas, uh, as being important for paying attention to ourselves. And music and engaging with music, particularly when we're singing or dancing, I think it unifies the activity within those two networks. So that's the kind of stuff we're looking for. Um, I can't say that we've found that yet. Um, it's kind of like, how will you know with it, you know, know it when, it, you, you know, when you see it. But that, that's how I'm thinking about it. Wow. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about these things, but we don't. We just have a few more minutes. And I saw that a couple of years ago, you, uh, at a seminar, you held a workshop called Music, Flow, and the Groove. And I wonder if you could quickly describe the, the workshop, but only if you promise to call me the next time you offer it. <laughs> what went on there? That workshop was a uh, kind of a hands-on experience to try to get the lay public uh, into the science sphere. So we had a number of experiential activities. We actually were recording people's brainwaves as they were, you know, moving along with music that they find personally compelling, right? So that's sort of most conducive to getting a person into that sort of state. So it was a kind of a fun way of exposing the public to the, the science, side of, uh, science side of things. Well, I look forward to uh, coming to the next uh, time you offer that workshop because uh, I want to be there. Yeah, Thanks. Wonderful. I've been talking to uh, Peter Janata as an associate professor at UC Davis in the psychology department and at the Center for Mind and Brain there. Uh, I'm Steve Mencher, and this has been another one of our Music and the Brain podcasts here at the Library of Congress. Thanks a lot, Peter. Oh, thank you very much.